Greetings once more from the Deep South here in Dunedin, New Zealand, to another riveting episode of Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast. I'm Glenn Peoples, your host. Well, things are changing around here. I'm experimenting with new music. Uh, new Zealand now has a new government, and I'm even contemplating getting a haircut. So things are on the move. It's been a while since our last episode, but after the turmoil leading up to the election, things have calmed down again. And say hello to my little friend is back. This episode, episode number 20, 20, will focus on an argument against Christianity and also against religion more generally, which I've called the argument from atrocity. The argument is basically as follows. Look at all the terrible things that Christians have done in history. They burn, they kill, trillions and zillions of people have died as a result. Boo Christianity. Let's be atheists. Arguably the worst offender in recent years in using this argument is the now somewhat notorious on the internet Christopher Hitchens. His particular presentation of this type of argument, I think, exposes more or less every type of weakness that it could have. But due to his unique boorishness, sometimes mistaken for showmanship or skill, he has become something of a hero for internet atheists, so I've decided to use his version of the argument. Be aware that I use the term argument fairly loosely here. Hitchens doesn't actually give an argument that is connected premises that establish a conclusion. Instead, he simply makes some claims about the involvement of religion in historical atrocities, does not actually defend those claims, and then hopes like mad that the audience will share his prejudices and connect the dots for themselves, concluding that religion is bad, atheism is good. Uh, incidentally, the question of truth in his version plays no role at all in his argument. I'll have a thing or two to say about the argument. What I will be saying more about, and this is really the point of discussing Hitchens at all, is the way that he tries to deflect the most obvious rebuttal to this argument, which is, well, if we're going to take the ridiculous approach of assessing a belief based on the involvement of those who hold that belief in historical atrocities, then we should reject atheism due to the involvement of atheists in such atrocities as well. I'll show how in the process of replying to this objection, Mr. Hitchens lapses into hopeless, hopelessly circular reasoning, which would never be acceptable in defense of any other cause. In fact, my conclusion will be that, due to the atrocious nature of Hitchens' argument itself, if we should reject every view that is associated with an atrocity, we should reject atheism because it is associated with this argument. So let's get underway. I'm going to try to help the atheists here a little who use this tactic by assembling the general ill-defined attack into the form of an argument. In Hitchens' very broad comments, 
the question of truth never even comes up. But I'm going to make sure that the question of truth does come up. So I'm going to make this a sufficiently clear argument so that it does. This helps these atheists in the sense that it makes their approach clear in how it means to reach its conclusion. But in another sense it doesn't help them at all. Because in clarifying the argument so we can see exactly what it is and how it is supposed to work, we also end up seeing its flaws. It's a bit like turning the lights on. You see how ugly this thing really is. So I'm going to frame the argument as follows. 1. If those who hold any belief are also responsible for carrying out horrible acts against their fellow human being, then that belief is false. 2. Some people who have believed in God or who have thought that Christianity is true have carried out some horrible acts against their fellow human being. 3. Therefore there is no God and Christianity is false. If you make the argument as clear as possible, that is what it looks like. Notice that this argument is about whether or not Christianity is true. I could have presented a much weaker and rather pointless argument that claimed that if people who hold a belief do terrible things, then that belief may have done some harm. And because it may have done some harm, we should avoid that belief. Now why would that weaker argument not work? Well, it's very simple. It is possible for unpleasant and even harmful beliefs to be true and even very important. This is not to concede that Christianity or theism more broadly is harmful, because what is conspicuous by its absence from the argument from atrocity is a careful argument that the religious beliefs themselves caused the atrocities. And I'm going to return to that point in a moment. But for now, just ask yourself, can you think of any beliefs that might have led to harmful things being done, and yet that belief is absolutely true. Think hard, your time starts now. Did you come up with any? Here are some that I can come up with and there are many more. What about the belief that the atom can be split? It may have led to many good and helpful things being done, a bit like religion in some cases, but consider the atomic equivalent of the Crusades or the Inquisition, namely the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and the threat that now exists in the form of North Korea. True belief, terrible consequences. Take another example, evolution. Now, just for now, I'm not saying anything about the truth or falsehood about aspects of evolutionary biology. That's not a dispute that I want to bring into this podcast. But I'm going to take it for granted that the atheist will believe wholeheartedly that Darwinian evolution or something like it is true. I mean, what choice does he have? So let's say that it is true for now. Geneticist James Watson, who won the Nobel Prize for his key role in discovering the structure of DNA, caused a scandal in 2007 by stating, citing an evolutionary basis, that black people are less intelligent than white people. He may not have been a racist, but there is absolutely zero doubt that there will in fact be people who are racists who will pounce on this evolutionary argument and use it to justify their racist beliefs and their poor treatment of people of color. Is this is evolutionary theory true? Okay, let's say that it is. But there's a negative consequence here. Would this type of racist behavior change the truth of evolutionary theory? Of course not. 
A third and final example, because I don't want to labour the point. I think it's a fairly obvious point. In a rural village in 18th century England, and this is hypothetical, a group of people witness a man stealing a loaf of bread. Let's say that this really happened. Because of their true belief that this man stole a loaf of bread, they drag him out of town and kill him by hanging him. Now they reacted very badly. That's unjust. But was their belief that led to this action true? Yes. Okay, so it's an obviously silly and weak argument to say that we should avoid beliefs just if people act on them by doing harmful things. So to have any real weight, this argument against Christianity has to be an argument that actually means to say something about the truth of Christianity or theism more broadly. However, in showing why the weaker argument would be a waste of time, we've already found one major reason to reject the argument from atrocity, even the stronger version. The argument that we're looking at here, the stronger version, says that if a belief is held by people who do harmful things, then the belief is false. We can even answer a more specific argument here that says if a belief leads to people doing harmful things, then that belief is false. But we've just looked at three examples, and there are plenty more that we could come up with, that clearly show that this claim is not true. True beliefs can lead to people doing harmful things. Now someone with a fondness for the argument from atrocity might want to step into the ring at this point to rescue his bloodied champion from the floor, as it were. But wait a second, he might say. Yes, it's true that some people might respond to true beliefs about nuclear science or evolution or crime in ways that are terrible. But they certainly don't have to. Those beliefs don't require them to respond in that way. You can hold true beliefs about nuclear science without nuking anyone. And you can be an evolutionist and not be a racist. And you can know who committed crimes without advocating vigilante justice. But far from rescuing the argument, this reply just digs another hole for the argument. After all, these things are true of Christianity as well. You can be a Christian without killing or torturing people. I feel silly having to point that out. This is where I think some desperation starts to kick in. At this point, the skeptic who really wants to gain some traction, using the argument from atrocity, will step into the role of the expert theologians, regardless of qualifications. He'll step into the role of the expert theologian or biblical scholar. And he'll tell us that if you're really going to follow the teachings of Christianity, then you should torture or kill people or do other horrible things to them, because that's what the Bible teaches Christians to do. The Crusades and the Inquisitions were nothing more than the consistent application of biblical Christianity, we might be told. I was in email dialogue with an atheist just recently, in fact I had contact with him just today, I believe, who actually said that the Inquisitors followed the Bible a little too well. Really. Out of interest, I asked this particular skeptic, to cite some actual examples of inquisitors and crusaders using the verses that he was citing to justify atrocities. The verses in question were as follows. These are the examples he gave me. John 15 verses 4 to 6, and I'll quote it. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, this is Jesus speaking by the way, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. 
If any one does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. According to the skeptic that I was speaking to, this verse, and I quote, mandated the Spanish, Inqui Spanish Inquisition with its public burning of heretics. End quote. The next verse, or next passage, was Luke eleven nineteen to twenty seven. This is Jesus speaking again. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they had supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, or minas, their sums of money, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I may have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by him, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has... Oh, sorry, to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Again, according to the skeptic that I was talking to, this passage, and I quote, was used to mandate the slaughter of non-Christians during the 13th century crusade by Pope Innocent III, end quote. In genuine curiosity and out of historical interest and honesty, I went on a quest for some information. I went hunting for any sources that would corroborate the claims about these texts of Scripture. Were these verses in fact used by the Crusaders, by the Pope Innocent III, or by the Inquisitors to justify killing or torturing or burning heretics or non-Christians? Did that really happen? In absolute honesty, I found only one type of corroboration for these claims. Atheist blogs. That's not a joke. Atheist blogs where people, or, or sorry, atheist blogs or message boards where atheists would come online, make the claim that religion was dangerous, and say that these verses were used by uh, crusaders and, and inquisitors in history to justify killing and torturing non-Christians. That's it. And these blogs and websites themselves provided absolutely no documentation, not one quote, not one historical source, nothing. But let's set that aside. Let's set this revisionism and dishonesty and fabrication aside just for now. Let's be generous to the skeptic and let's make believe, let's pretend 
that there really is a good body of evidence that the cruelties of the past were done because of scripture, scripture texts like these. It's not true, but let's pretend. There's still a much more important argument than the historical argument, and that's the logical argument. It's, is it really true that oppression, torture, and violence really does follow logically from the teaching of Christianity? In other words, is this the correct way of interpreting the New Testament? I have not been persuaded that it is, but I welcome anyone to put in the time and the effort to show otherwise. I want to stress that time and effort. Don't just come online and make a claim. If you're going to invest the actual time and effort to study the matter, to study the New Testament scriptures yourself, and persuade me that actually they do command us to torture and kill people in order to get converts to the Christian faith, step up and show me that that's true. Provide the evidence. In fact, all the New Testament passages that I am aware of like the ones in John 15 and Luke 11, quoted earlier, that speak of vengeance being carried out on the enemies of God, those who reject Christ, all judgment that is meted out against them is done not by the church or individual believers, but by God himself. Take, for example, Matthew 13, 24-30, Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds. Uh, the wheat, sorry, even when the servants want to tear out the weeds, in this story representing unbelievers, the master, God, says this. He says, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. So he says, Don't do it. Then he says, Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then later in this passage Jesus explains, and I quote, The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out, his, out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. End quote. Now, using the logic that was put to me by, by my skeptical friend, this mandates the burning of heretics. Not so. In fact, it predicts the judgment of the world at the hands of God, and specifically forbids the servants of God in the present age from taking matters into their own hands. Did you notice that? This is all the more true in light of the New Testament passages that clearly speak against the mistreatment of others, or those texts that encourage the church to gain a good reputation in the eyes of unbelievers by the quality of their lives. This is hardly likely to be achieved by setting out to kill them. I've heard Jesus understandably but incorrectly in my view, labelled as a pacifist because of his commandments about loving our, our neighbour or our enemy even. But at the opposite end of the spectrum of error, any suggestion that the Christian scripture advocates converting people to faith through violence is just a fabrication. But now I want to look at Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens' circular defence of atheism. Here's where the Christian replies to this argument from atrocity by pointing out the obvious. Let's look back at the first proposition of the argument. If those who hold any belief are also responsible for carrying out horrible acts against their fellow human being, then that belief is false. It is said that any argument that proves too much ends up proving nothing at all. Christians have noticed the obvious way that if any atheist endorses Proposition 1, the first part of this argument, uh, 
then he ends up proving too much, because that proposition leads to the rejection not just of Christianity, but of atheism as well. Consider the most vicious, murderous political regimes of the 20th century, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot. I'll come back to Hitler in a moment, but what do these first three have in common? Atheism. In the case of Stalin and Mao Zedong, we've got the world's most murderous dictatorships in the history of the human race, and they were driven by men who were unambiguously atheists. Now, I've seen the clientele of some atheist websites, or just atheists online in general, make the error of assuming that just because people point out that Stalin, etc., were atheists, we are thereby blaming atheism for their evil deeds. No, not so. This is the mistake that atheists make about the Crusades and the Inquisition. What I'm pointing out is that if you are gullible enough to believe that the horrible acts of a person falsifies any beliefs he holds, then, and only then, you must commit to the belief that atheism is false, because of the horrific acts of atheists in modern history. Secular regimes killed untold millions of people. Surely, as they say, what's source for the goose is source for the gander as well, isn't it? This is where Christopher Hitchens comes to pieces. His almost unbelievable reply is to say that, well, any regime that carries on in such terrible ways is, by virtue of the fact that it carries on so terribly, not secular at all, but religious. Here, listen to him for yourself. Fascism, the original 20th century totalitarian movement, is really, historically, another name for the, for the political activity of the Catholic right wing. There is no other name for it. Francoism, Salazarism, what happened in Croatia, in Austria, in Bavaria, and so on. The church keeps on trying to apologize for it, can't apologize for it enough. It's the Catholic right, Mussolini. You can't quite say that about Hitler, National Socialism, because that's also based on Nordic and pagan blood myths, uh, leader worship, and so on, though Hitler never repudiated his membership of the church. Um, and prayers were said for him on his birthday every year till the very end on the orders of the Vatican. Uh, and all of these facts are well known and the church still hasn't found another and a way to apologize for that enough. And whatever it is, you can call that, you can't call it secular. You may not call it secular. Now, okay, moving to Marxism, moving to Leninism. Okay, in Russia in 1917, for hundreds of years, millions of people have been told the head of the state is a supernatural power. The Tsar is not just the head of the government, not just a king, but he stands between heaven and earth. Uh, and this, this has been inculcated in generations of Russians for hundreds of years. If you're Joseph Stalin, himself a seminarian from Georgia, you shouldn't be in the totalitarianism business if you can't exploit a ready-made reservoir of credulity and servility that's as big as that. It's just waiting for you to capitalize on. So what do you do? Well, we'll have an inquisition for one thing. We'll have miracles for another. Lysenko's biology will produce four harvests a year. We'll have heresy hunts. We'll tell everyone they must be grateful only to the leader for what they get, and they must thank him and praise him all the time, and that they must be aware all the time of the existence of the counter-revolutionary devil who waits to... You see where I'm going with this? That's not secularism. It's surrogate. It is at the very best and the very worst. The examples I've been talking about are a surrogate for messianism, for the belief in ultimate history and the end of days and the conclusion of all things, which is, I've tried to argue, I hope with some success, the problem to begin with, the replacement of reason by faith. Those were three clips from 
Christopher Hitchens' debate with Alistair McGrath. Let's note a couple of initial things about the historical comments about fascism, first of all, before I get to the more important questions. Notice what Hitchens says. It, it that is, fascism, was the political activity of the Catholic Church. I hope he's just saying that for rhetorical effect, to get a good zinger in, which is what he seems to do best, rather than genuinely argue. It's debate. He wants to make big impact with strong comments like this, but the comments are, are demonstrably untrue. Embarrassing to say that kind of thing in a history class. You'd be laughed out. Take Mussolini. In Mussolini's regime, there was never church-state union. Fascism was the name for the political actions not of the church, but of the government. The young Mussolini freely expressed his dislike and contempt for the Catholic Church, calling priests black germs, of all things. When he rose to power, yes, he clearly sought to curry favour with the Church, because of its huge sway in Italy. All of a sudden, and completely coincidentally, of course, in 1923, just after he came to power, he suddenly felt the urge to rush out and get all of his children baptised. Why? Because he'd been a devout Catholic all his life, and his, his rise to power and his fascist regime was just an outworking of his Catholic faith? No because he wanted the blessing of the church. He wanted to gain favor. Uh, another example, his marriage to his wife had been officiated in a civil ceremony in 1915. Civil, unreligious ceremony, how completely uncatholic. But after coming to power, all of a sudden, he sees the pressing need to go to church and have a religious wedding. Coincidence, of course. Mussolini literally paid for the favor of the church. Uh, I'll quote from uh, a website called historylearningsite.co.uk. The link is in the show notes. But this is, this is verifiable historical truth about Mussolini's life. But listen to this. The Papal States, the name given to the land previously owned by the Roman Catholic Church in Italy, had lost all its land in the 1870 unification of Italy. The Roman Catholic Church received £30 million in compensation in 1929 and the church was given 109 acres in Rome to create a new papal state, the Vatican. The Pope was allowed, notice allowed by Mussolini, a small army, police force, post office and rail station. The Pope was also given a country retreat called Castel Gandolfo. He's bribing the church, that's what's going on there. And even then, in spite of the obvious attempt to gain favor and the huge bribes, the Church and Mussolini still did not always see eye to eye. They disagreed rather famously, well, world famous in Italy at least, over state education. Mussolini wanted the government to control education so that a good generation of little fascists, fascists could be raised up. The Church publicly disagreed. The biggest clash of all was over Mussolini's charter of race in 1938. It was an anti-Semitic law that stripped Jews of the rights of Italian citizenship. They could not teach. They could not hold a state job or belong to the fascist party. Not that they'd want to. Work for a bank. They couldn't do that. Or an insurance company. They couldn't marry an Italian non-Jew. They couldn't join the army. The church was outraged by this. The church rejected this law to the point where the Pope sent a personal letter of protest to Mussolini. But note, the church had no power to strike the law down because fascism, contrary to Hitchens, was not the activity of the church but the state. Remember Hitchens' claim. Fascism was the name for the political actions of the Catholic Church. Hist history, 
quite plainly shows that the fascist state was one thing, the Catholic Church was another. Was the Church in Italy too tolerant of Mussolini? Sure, let's say that, but no, that's not enough for the zealous Mr. Hitchens. Let's not get let the truth get in our way here. The same is true of Hitler. So what if the Vatican urged people to say prayers for Hitler? Why is that even important? Why? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't get why that strikes Hitchens as important. As a Christian, it strikes me as perfectly appropriate to pray for a wayward ruler. It also strikes me as pragmatically smart for Hitler to not specifically renounce his membership of the Church if he wanted to, to gain influence in Europe. To do otherwise would have been to shoot himself in the foot. The sin of the Church in Nazi Germany was not that it was behind Hitler's regime, but rather, as a recent article in the local newspaper here in Dunedin says, quoting Elan Steinberg, Pope Pius was guilty of, quote, public silence in the face of absolute evil, end quote. The problem is that they didn't do enough. It's not that they orchestrated it. That's just mumbo-jumbo crackpot conspiracy theory. The same cannot be said of Christians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who ended up paying what he himself called the cost of discipleship, being executed by Hitler's regime for his role in attempting to overthrow it. But actually, Mussolini and Hitler are a bit of a sideshow here. I only mention them because of Hitler's imaginative reconstruction of history, portraying them as puppets of the Church. When I think of an atheistic state that does great evil, I don't think of those two because I don't even know if they were atheists or not. What I think of is the likes of Marx, Lenin, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot. They were, clearly, atheists. And it is Hitchens' comments on Stalin that I want to draw your attention to because that's where his completely unreasonable approach is exposed. Listen. Take a moment to see just how completely circular his comments are. The skeptic says, look at religion and all the harm that it has done. The forced allegiance, and the inquisitions, the persecuting, the demonization of those who don't follow its beliefs and practices, so forth, the violence and what have you. So a Christian says, well you can't reject Christianity because of that Mr. Atheist, or you'd have to reject the atheistic beliefs of the rulers of secular regimes. Stalin, for example, did all those things as well. And then good old Christopher Hitchens comes along and says, Look, Stalin's regime was really a religious movement. I mean, just look at what he did. The forced allegiance, the inquisitions, the persecuting and demonization of those who didn't cherish his ideals. That's the point, Mr. Hitchens. The very point that the Christian is making is that atheists have done their share of the same kind of thing as well, so the sword cuts both ways. What Hitchens is doing is using circular reasoning as follows. He, he reasons like this. Religion is inherently dangerous and oppressive, and if you point to secular re regimes as examples of non-religious oppressive systems, then you're wrong. They were really religious because, after all, they oppressed and persecuted, and as we know, persecution and violence and that kind of thing, hero worship, messianism, call it what you will, is inherently religious. Don't you see how circular that is? Can you have a religious outlook that promotes heresy hunts and cataclysmic end of days? Sure you can. Can you have a secular regime that does things just as bad? Yes. Does that make the religious movements secular? No. Nor does it make the secular movements religious. Now to be fair to Hitchens, he's not alone. And it's not just the atheists who fall prey to this kind of muddled argument.
Some time ago, when looking at the issue of religion in the public square, I noted an argument from Robert Audi, who is himself a Christian, but unfortunately who argues against the appeal to religious beliefs in the public square in much the same way. He says, since religion is polarizing and divisive, we should keep religious convictions out of our public decision-making. Now, to be fair, he notes that some might reply by pointing out that non-religious political beliefs have been divisive too, and he cites clashes between communism and fascism as an example. But he simply replies by saying that the fact that such disputes are so divisive just indicates how much like religious disputes they really are, so they don't count. In other words, division is just being identified with religion. Just as in Hitchens' circular reasoning, religion is being identified with oppression, dictatorial leadership, and so forth. So that whenever they are present, he will say, Aha, look, it's religious after all. Look how terrible it is. It must be religious. Using an argument like this should serve as an intellectual embarrassment. The kind of video clip of you on stage that someone plays at your 21st birthday to absolutely humiliate you and look like a right idiot. And yet Hitchens seems to think it's some sort of unanswerable comeback. Sorry, no dice. Face the facts. Genuinely and thoroughly atheistic regimes, like those of Stalin, Mao and Pol Pot, have been, at very least, every bit as ruthless and murderous as anything ever done by a Christian movement. Again, I'm not saying that this shows that atheism is false, of course. That would just be to make the same kind of mistake that Hitchens makes about religion in the first place. But you might want to rush in to prop up this collapsing argument against Christianity before it topples over altogether. But wait, you insist. Christians who did terrible things to people in the past did those things as Christians. They did them to further Christianity. So there's the difference. The atheist that you're referring to, Glenn, didn't do them out of commitment to atheism or to further atheism or oppose religion, did they? So there's a huge difference. Well, two points actually come to mind. Firstly, no, sometimes the acts for which Christianity takes the blame were not done, at least not directly, in defense of Christianity. The second point, and I think the more important one here, is that sometimes the brutalities of secular regimes were carried out because of atheism or in opposition to religious belief, and deliberately so. Let's turn to the first point first. On the first point, some of the deeds that a few skeptics like to blame on the Christian faith were done for political reasons rather than strictly theological reasons. The most obvious example is the Crusades. The best advice I can offer you here is that before you comment on what the Crusades were, read about them. And by read about them, I don't mean um, go to an internet message board for skeptics and read people raving about the Crusades and the evils of religion. Actually pick up a history book, you know, things with pages with letters on them, and read it. Or if you're not much of a reader, I'd recommend a great BBC documentary with Terry Jones on the Crusades. Not at all from a Christian point of view, but very informative about this. Why did the Crusades begin? Was it so that we can kill pagans, or so that we can convert people to Christianity? Not even close. No honest historian will say this. It actually began, even if it did not continue, for perfectly good reasons. In the year 1076, 
Jerusalem was captured by Muslims. I'm telling you this in case you actually don't go away and look it up. I'm just, I'll just give you some of the basics. This meant, among other things, that Christians who had made or wanted to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem were placed in harm's way. The Christian leader Alexius I of Constantinople realized both the harm that Christians were now facing and also the very real danger that Constantinople was now in, being so very close to the territories already conquered by Muslims. So, he made what, by any standard, is a, a very sensible request. Knowing the influence had by the Pope in the West, Alexius in the East asked the Pope, Pope Urban, to send help in defending Constantinople and in securing the way for Christians who wanted to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And that's precisely what the First Crusade was. Even the skeptic will admit that there is nothing inherently object objectionable about this, nor for that matter does it have anything to do with forced conversion or executing non-Christians. Now, did the Crusade go badly? Yes, it certainly did go off the tracks. In many ways, even to the point where cities were attacked and all but destroyed when actually they were inhabited by Christians. It kind of became an exercise in blind fury. Constantinople was so horrified with the rabble that arrived at its gates from the west that they promptly locked the Crusaders out. I'm definitely not going to try and excuse what went on in the Crusades, but the absolutely hopeless misrepresentation of those events that you see scattered across the internet serves as a powerful reminder of the unfortunate fact that for some skeptics the facts are much less important than the myth when it comes to scoring points in the crusade against Christianity. Turning to the second point, sometimes the brutalities of secular regimes most definitely were carried out because of the atheistic beliefs of the leaders involved. And here are a few examples. Religion itself was specifically targeted by Lenin and by Stalin because atheism, in their view, is true, and religion is deception, famously called by Marx and Lenin, the opiate of the masses. So they reasoned. Stalin had 48,000 churches closed down, and his reign saw the imprisonment and execution of thousands of clergy. Since there is no God to look to, the highest authority is the state, and anyone who suggests otherwise is undermining that authority. Mao Zedong of China pulled no punches in his view of religion and why he deliberately suppressed it. Famously, he said, and I quote, religion is poison. Now that's interesting in light of the of debate between Hitchens and McGrath. Religion, poison or cure, was the name of that debate. Guess which position Hitchens took. It's precisely because of this view that, that Mao uh, treated Chinese worshippers as he did under Mao Zedong, and specifically because of his rejection of religious belief and his view of the threat of religion, Christianity in China, some have said, all but disappeared from public sight. Interestingly, uh, in, in the case of Pol Pot's murderous regime, religion was oppressed. Why? Because it causes too much conflict. Oh, the irony! Cause the death of a quarter of Cambodia's population by all means, but whatever you do, don't allow religion. That's much too dangerous. So he had standards after all. And he also had similar reasons for opposing religion to Christopher Hitchens.
So there's no defense to be had here by saying that these acts weren't carried out because of atheism or denial of religious beliefs. At least in part, they were. Now, you might want to defend atheism anyway by saying that, well, atheism should not be lived out this way. Fine. But why is this defense only available to atheists? It should go without saying that Christianity should not be lived out by killing people either. You might want to also reply by saying that these ruthless dictators were not just atheists, they were other things as well. They were communists, they were politicians in tumultuous times of social upheaval and so forth. But in saying this, you provide Christians with another reply as well. Leaders in the Crusades and in the Inquisitions were not just Christians. They were men. They were people in often, uh, they were political figures, they were living in, in times of great social upheaval and in power vacuums at times. They were men responding to difficult circumstances and capable of personal failings and so forth. So if you think it's fair to condemn Christianity as a whole today for the actions of such people in such circumstances, circumstances, it's late at night, then it is fair to condemn atheism because of the actions of Joseph Stalin and Pol Pot and so forth. You cannot have your cake and eat it, too. The only defensible thing to do here is not to say that atheism is false because of what communist dictators did, of course, but rather to recognize how silly it is to assess beliefs this way. Of course you can't assess the truth of a view by looking at the actions of those who hold it, or even by looking at the way that they acted on it. A much more interesting debate, in my view, is to be had about whether or not we actually have a secure moral platform from which to pass moral judgment on the acts of the inquisitors or the communists. They, they may have been nasty and undesirable, but what makes them in fact immoral? This I think is the bigger issue. and. I'm not going to address it now because I addressed it a few episodes ago when I looked at the moral argument for theism. But the bottom line is this. Skeptics, don't use the argument from atrocity. It's like showing up at school and realizing that you forgot to put your pants on. You just end up looking silly. Firstly, it doesn't work. And secondly, it'll come back to bite you. And any comeback you can scrape together against that bite will just end up serving as a defense of the very religious people you were trying to refute in the first place. That's it for now. I'll try to make the gap between this episode and the next one a little shorter, but that's the end of my treatment of the argument from atrocity. In the meantime, by all means, uh, check out the blog if you haven't done so already. Some of you may be people who just listen through the iTunes store, but we do have a blog at beretta-online.com. That's where the website is. There are articles and blog and a blog there as well. Uh, I'm still looking for someone who might be interested in joining me in my podcasting efforts. So if you are at all interested in this, or you uh, can think of someone you know who might be, drop them a line, or drop me a line too, at info at onlinecom And this episode is now drawing to a close. It's gone on a little longer than some episodes might, so there won't be any uh, This Week's in History or any media roundups now. Maybe next time, but until next time, until episode 21 rolls around, this is Glenn Peoples saying, until then, take care, and we'll see you later. It's goodbye from... Save!